Yeah, there's been lots of exciting landouts. One in particular, I really um, ballsed it up, as it were, uh, landing on the side of a hill once on a little airstrip in New Zealand. And I misjudged the clouds had come over, it was grey and overcast, and so there wasn't any bright sun which helps you see shadows and things on the ground. And so there were not only air brakes, but could also be used as actual flaps to climb better. This brought the LS2 a bit more performance, and it was Helmut Reichmann who brought the LS2 to the World Championships in Australia. Cross-country flights do not always have to be a one-way ticket towards our goal or an outland. And today, we're going to talk about a very simple way of increasing the chances of making back home during cross-country flights. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 101. Today will be a first for the podcast, going to do things a little bit differently. I'm going to hand the microphone over to our guest host in Colorado at the Chess in the Air studios, Clemens Chipek. He has been a guest himself a few times here on the podcast. I'm sure you've heard him. But today we are putting him to work, and he's going to do an interview with Tim Bromhead from Pure Glide in New Zealand. I know a lot of you have seen his amazing YouTube videos soaring over some of those most beautiful terrain there in New Zealand. I'm really looking forward to setting back, taking a break, and listening to this interview. Tim has some very interesting flights and experiences that he's going to share with us. He also recently started a Pure Glide news segment on YouTube. It is very cool, very informative and interesting as well. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so you can check that out. Also today on this episode... Flying Simon is back with another story in his segment. Simon says he's going to talk about some gliders that maybe you have never heard of. Sergio, the soaring master, brings us a new lesson in soaring about cross-country flying. You know, our sponsors mean a lot to us, and one of those important sponsors is Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. They are number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems and your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable systems. Aerox recently introduced the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag portable oxygen system. This thing is small, lightweight, and it is super simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for that occasional user who wants the flexibility to access those higher altitudes without having to worry about flying impaired. It's now available at Aerox Distributors and, of course, at Aerox.com. So remember our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. This is uh, Clemens Chipek from Chess in the Air. Uh, I've been on this show a few times as a guest, but today I have the honor of standing in for Chuck as your guest host. And uh, I'm delighted to introduce today's guest on the show, the man behind some of the best gliding videos on YouTube, Tim Bromhead from New Zealand. Hi, Tim. G'day. Thanks very much hey. for uh, having me. Awesome. Awesome. All right. I'm glad you could come on the show. This is, this is going to be terrific. So Tim, I've, I've watched every one of your videos, I think, um, on your Pure Glide channel. Uh, and I must say, you've been hitting it out of the park. You've found your own style. Uh, your content is excellent. I think it's a, it's a great mix of education and entertainment, racing, there's eye candy, uh, and, and of course, safety. Uh, and you're pulling all of it off really well. Uh, and we'll get more into some of your content on the show, but I just want to tell everyone right away, to look up Pure Glide on YouTube. Uh, I doubt there's anyone listening today who wouldn't want to be your subscriber. Anyway, but first, let's give everyone a sense who the man behind Pure Glide really is. So, Tim Bromhead, what is your aviation story? Oh, well, thank you very much for all that. And uh, my aviation story is probably quite simple. I um, always wanted to fly something at school. I was interested in... Um, getting the books out on microlights. And a friend of mine's dad was doing gliding and said, come out for a glider flight, a trial flight. So I went and did that. And I've kind of been doing it ever since. So it's purely gliding. I haven't done any other form of flying. Yeah, yeah. But well, what age was that when you started? Uh, it was about 15 years ago. So I was about 25 or so. 
Yeah, great. Well, I mean, you're flying in New Zealand, right? Uh, and, and I only know New Zealand as a tourist. It's, it's an awesome country. It's one of my favorites. Um, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about where it is that you're flying from? I mean, like the, the airfield, the club, the conditions, uh, all that stuff. Yeah, sure. So we're flying out of Piako Gliding Club, which is uh, in the central North Island. We've got uh, a mix of flatland flying as well as uh, a local ridge, which you've probably seen in some of the videos. And as we track further south, we get into some, we've got a few mountains in the North Island, uh, not many, but uh, and a big lake, Lake Taupo there. Uh, and then, uh, of course, every once in a while, we can get away to the South Island as well, where we've got proper mountain ranges and things. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, is this, this is like a Hobbit country, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly right. So, uh, Hobbiton is actually quite close to our airfield where they filmed Lord of the Rings. Excellent. So, we fly over it quite yeah, often. Yeah, I mean, the, the movie is spectacular. You look at their videos, I mean, they just they just uh, look just as spectacular as, as the movie. Um, but you've got pretty technical conditions down there, right? I mean, you've got thermals and ridge and wave i mean looking from your your movies and your videos uh convergence so you got the sea breezes coming in from both sides of the island and there's there's lake breezes as well lake taupo is a pretty big lake um and, and to me it, it all sounds quite complicated i mean the the only thing that is close to it where i've flown is, is in montague uh, in northern california because there's got you know ocean breezes coming in from different sides too but you know, it still seems to pale in comparison. So, so if, if you have new, new pilots coming in or you've got visiting pilots, how, how do you orient them to the site and to the complexities? Yeah, so probably one advantage we've got is most of the air is reasonably moist. So there's almost always clouds. And it's very rare we have a proper blue day. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can direct people, just fly to clouds and you'll probably be okay. And uh, that will get you through most of the time. As you do more flying and you start venturing further, you know, you start running into the coasts and you start getting into the sea breezes. So sea breezes and the convergences are critical for doing decent distance in New Zealand. And it makes it really interesting. As you say, it might be a bit complicated, but it is interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, you got to fly on the right side of the clouds, right? When you have these sea breezes coming in, get on the wrong side, you're, you're basically down on the ground. Yeah, and normally you can see that quite clearly because the ocean is a lot moister, so the cloud level is a lot lower. Yeah. So we get some nice big steps in the cloud quite often. Yeah. And uh, the the real tricky part is when you get sea breezes coming in that you can't see easily, and they can cut cut off the uh, the thermals underneath you. Yeah. Are these are these sea breeze fronts? Are they usually strong enough that you can go and and fly straight in, along the convergence, or is is it kind of have to keep circling and stopping and circling all the time. Yeah, no, a lot of them are strong enough. You can just keep flying without stopping. Usually they're not that long or they'll be, you know, they follow the shape of the coastline. So, mm -hmm. uh, and then they collide with another sea breeze from another direction. So they, you often can't do vast distances with them, but when you get in one, they're often quite strong. Yeah. It's, it must be fascinating. I've, uh really intrigued by it um i mean uh, and then from your videos i can tell you've flown all over new zealand and there's you know as you said the the north island is a lot more gentle and um with uh, but your cloud bases tend to be really low i mean i watched some of your videos it's totally different from where i'm flying i'm usually many thousands of feet above the ground and sometimes you're like uh you know you're really close uh, uh, always a few minutes away from a land out um, yeah. <laughs> but uh uh, and then you've got the the, the, the South Island, uh, tall mountains. Uh, it's kind of a little confusing. I've only flown in Condor on the South Island. And even even that gets me confused. So, uh, And it, the terrain is looks looks pretty inhospitable. So so tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, how the, the flying on both islands and, uh, and what your favorite places are. Yeah, well, I mean, we're so lucky we can just travel one ferry trip and we've got almost a completely different country with completely different terrain to fly in and it is completely different with the mountain flying i've only done last season and a few
few other times I've been down down there. So I'm heading down there again this season for some more flying. Because uh, it takes time to get used to mountain flying. And if you've seen in some of my videos, I a lot of the times I had no idea what was happening. So uh, I'm very keen to get back down there and try and piece it all together and, and actually do some contests as well down there in the mountains, which the guys who have been doing it all their lives, you know, uh, uh, do a great job. And it's something that takes time to a skill to build up. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, have, have you thought about, uh, I've seen people do this, uh, going away from one island to the other island. Have, have you thought about doing that? Well, I've thought about it. And uh, you need a few logistics. Like, for example, if you land out in the wrong island, uh, you'll need a retrieve crew who is happy to take days to come and get you. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> I haven't planned it yet, but certainly uh, the wave flying is something I haven't done a huge amount of yet either. And I'd like to do more wave flying. And then if you get more experience with wave flying, then you could start to piece together flying between the wave between the two islands. Yeah. Yeah, well, I suppose you have to get pretty high to be really comfortable yeah. getting getting across the water there. Yeah, Terry it's not, it's not super far, it right? A... But it's uh, it's still it's still a good distance. Yeah, it is. It's Terry Delore who's done it a few times. Said the other night, you need at least twenty thousand feet minimum, ideally as much as possible. So, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so so around, uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of people. I mean, the people know New Zealand obviously as a, as a soaring mecca, and uh, in, and the the place that comes to mind for most people is is Omarama. Um, I've actually driven past Omarama, but uh, I couldn't get that the, the weather wasn't right for uh, trying to get up get soaring. But um, and I think you've flown a contest there uh, a year ago or so. But there's there's been a lot of speculation in the soaring world about the fate of the airfield there and the and the operation. Can can you do you know more about the status there and can you fill us in? Yeah, absolutely. So unfortunately, Glido Marima, which was previously the only commercial organisation in New Zealand doing glider flying, uh, shut down for various reasons. Uh, since then. The airfield wants to keep flying operations happening at the airfield uh, that's owned not by Glido Marimer, it's owned by council and uh, another group. So they want flying to continue there. Uh, mm -hmm. So they're looking at investing in tow planes so that flying can continue there year, uh, well, throughout the summer at least. Also, Milan has started a, one of the instructors from Glido Marimer has started his own flying uh, organization there mm -hmm. and he is going to be operating uh this summer kohu kohu soaring i think it's called uh -huh. so if people want to visit once we're out of covid and do some flying in omarama that will still be an option which is great oh that is that is great yeah i mean yeah and so i know at the moment it's basically not a not an option obviously for anybody to travel to New Zealand, but uh, I'm, I'm sure I hope I can come back at some time. And, yeah. uh, it just looks, uh, it looks, uh, it would be terrific. It's just, uh, just an amazing place. Um, well, let's let's switch gears a bit. Uh, I mean, we both uh, fly Ventus gliders from Champiot. Can, can you tell us a little more about your Ventus and how it compares to other gliders you've flown? Yeah, sure. So I started off with a DG300 as my uh, first glider I owned. Yep, that's Before a nice, that, I was flying nice a, Yeah, yeah, no, it's really good. And uh, before that, I was flying the club's Discus, uh, Discus B, I think it was. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I spent a lot of hours in that. And uh, so I already knew the Shemperth gliders. Uh, this Ventus was for sale for a little while, a Ventus CT. And, you know, the, the lack of turbo was holding me back in some ways from being able to push basically the amount of uh, distance I was willing to try and push myself yeah. and I found I was turning around early uh, when I didn't need to because I was getting worried about landing out so having the turbo means I can kind of push myself a bit further without uh, fear of causing such a, a pain to do a retrieve yeah so that was one reason I wanted to upgrade is to get the engine and uh, 
start pushing myself a bit further. Yeah, and I suppose the engine is a is a really good engine at the at the uh, altitudes you're you're flying at. Uh, I have to be very careful with the engine uh, in Colorado because the the lowest areas here are five thousand feet above the ground, and so if you and usually it's density altitude of eight thousand, and where you you know if you want to stay two thousand feet above the ground, density altitude is ten thousand. And uh, this engine doesn't do very well at 10,000 feet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been wondering how high can I actually fly with it. I have no idea. Yeah, and, well, uh, you can I get try, over try it and let me know how high you can climb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hasn't been much of a problem so far. Yeah, yeah. But it'd be also, I mean, I've seen you watch always for land-out fields, right? So you're very careful about uh, not starting the engine over unlandable terrain, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And. I've been flying non-engine gliders now for uh, nearly my whole flying career, except the last year. So I guess my flying style is always fly to landable terrain or be within glide of landable terrain as, as you should be. And so uh, you really have to fly like that because I don't know how many times your engine hasn't started, but it's a common thing that people end up in trouble they end up in stressful situation, you know, and if they haven't got a field picked out ready to land and you can it can go badly very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And it can be a, it can be user error, it can be the machine, or it can be if you once you're stressed it's it's much easier to, to make a mistake. Yeah. I mean I've read accident reports where people just forget to put on the the you know, turn on the fuel line and uh, Yeah, that's a common one. <laughs> so it's happened a lot in New Zealand as well. I do want to thank our longtime sponsor of the show. We are so honored to have the support of the Southern California Soaring Academy. They are doing meaningful and almost monthly now nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also young people in STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility located just outside of Los Angeles there in the high desert of Southern California. They also have a fantastic flight school there, and they are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you'd like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, please pop over to the website at soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. All right, so so let's talk a little bit about contest flying. Uh, I've flown my, my first uh, U.S. nationals this year, and you've got a lot more experience than I do with, with contests. Uh, you've even been to a, to a world championship. Uh, and that sounds like super exciting. So what's been your experience in that? And how is, how is it different to fly at the Worlds than at a, at a regional or national contest? Yeah, so the Worlds was um, in Australia. So quite close relatively for us to go and compete in it, which is why uh, we did that one. And, uh, you know, uh, just flying in Australia is a whole different world to New Zealand as well. And it's probably closer to the kind of flying you do where you're at 10,000 feet a lot of the time or higher in thermals. And the big differences are, you know, you really need to uh, focus on the racing aspects, things like height bands. We don't have height bands in New Zealand because we're at 3,000 feet. So our height band is above the ground. Whereas (laughs) you can actually start thinking about where in the thermals you're going to be in Australia at 10,000 feet. Uh, also just the sheer number of gliders so a big contest in New Zealand will be 20 to 30 gliders whereas over there we had you know 120 gliders or whatever in the whole contest and a single gaggle would be 40 to 50 gliders so that was a whole different ball game yeah wow yeah I mean that's that's actually one of the safety aspects right of contest flying and uh, I remember when I I decided to fly competitively. I was wondering if that would make me safer or less safe, and and how I would deal with these big gaggles. Um, and I'm still not sure if if I'm you know if it's made me safer overall. But how do you think about that? Have the skills that you developed for contest flying have they made you a safer pilot? And and what advice would you have for for anyone who uh, is on the fence about whether they should enroll in a contest or not? I mean, does it does it uh, does the racing mindset creep in and uh, so you're induced to take more risks or how, how do you think about all that? Yeah, so in New Zealand, you know, probably 70% of people flying in a contest are just doing it for fun. And sure, we have a few people who are really competitive and uh, I'm one of them to some extent. 
Yeah, you the, um, come across as competitive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but there are lots of people who just come and do it for fun. Yeah, the best thing about contest flying is it is excellent cross-country training for you. And you have a whole support crew there to come and retrieve you if you land out. You have all the facilities to give you a weather briefing in the morning. So especially in New Zealand, it's the perfect way to improve your cross-country flying skills. Uh, and as for the safety aspect, we don't have as many people in gaggles and things in New Zealand. So from that aspect, it's not uh, much more dangerous than just casual everyday flying. Yeah, it sounds it sounds more like a, a U.S. Uh, regional contest. Uh, I mean, I've flown, I've, I've been at the in, in Minnesota at a, at a local uh, the regional event, and that basically describes all the things you just described. Uh, fit there, uh, number of gliders, uh, type of terrain was very land landable terrain everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and very very friendly, right? So it's basically everybody was there to have have a good time, and, and you know, racing was sort of a um, yeah, for a few people, they were really competitive, but but most people, not really. That's right. And we're doing this for fun. So, And if you want to improve, that is a great way to do it. Yep, it is, yeah. All right, so so let's talk a little bit about your experience as an instructor. Um, I mean, there's uh, you've got, uh, among your many different forms of videos, there's this series that you call Instructor Reacts, where you comment on accidents uh, or mishaps. And, and I, th I think those videos are really well done. Um, they're very respectful to the pilots that are involved and, and, and you very much focus on the teaching aspects. So, so what I wanted to ask you is, is uh, what is it like to be a gliding instructor? And can you tell who will make a good student and who won't make a good student when, you know, when they show up for your, for your first lesson? And, uh, and and who, who has an advantage? Uh, are there people that are like demog demographies, like power pilots or RC pilots or condor pilots or whatever you have? Who has an advantage uh, with that prior experience or can that prior experience be, be a liability? So, for example, I found that some airline pilots uh, are really good at uh, becoming good soaring pilots and making that transition. And and, and others really struggle there at heart, just big machine operators. And when you put them in a more unstructured environment, such as, such as soaring, uh, you know, they, they, they really struggle a bit. So how, how do you, how, what's your experience as an instructor with, with students? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So gliding is a really odd sport because it's both very technical and also an art. So it's combining art and science. And ideally you're, you're good at both. You've, you need to have that instinctual right. yep. feel uh, for the air and the glider, which you know you only get with experience as well, of course. But then being analytical is very useful as well. And the very top pilots do huge amounts of analytics to figure out exactly what they need to improve. So you need a combination of both uh, those skills, really. You can't be just one or the other to be really great. Yeah, so a science and an artist. So how, how do you spot that? When you, do you spot that when you see a new, when you have a new student, or how do you can you assess it and say this will make a good student, or this one, you know, well, maybe how, does it take you like a few lessons, or how, how do you find out? Yeah, I mean, most people are kind of a mix of both. You know, it's it's very rare you find someone incredibly regimented, but you notice some people just like focusing on the instruments, and they like the circuit to be based on landmarks on the ground, for example, as opposed to... Yeah, yep, yep, that's a good example. Yeah, I've seen that too. Yeah, as opposed to looking at, say, the angle that they are to the aiming point, you know, and, and how does it feel like we're at the right height or not, you know? So, uh, yeah, there's always a mix, and to be able to land anywhere, you need a bit of the, the latter, of course. Yep, so, so as an instructor, obviously, you focus on safety. So are there specific things that you would, uh, that pilot, you, you see pilots do that they uh, don't pay enough attention to or should do differently? Um, I mean, I've, I've done some root cause analysis of gliding accidents. And so, for example, I found that a huge number of accidents happen because um, uh, pilots try to avoid some undesirable outcome and, and landing out is one of, you know, one on top of their list, obviously. And you, you described it before as, as being, you know, one of the things that held yeah. you back because it's this this concern that you might end up in a field, uh, and uh, all the inconveniences um, associated with that. But um, uh, you know, if, if there's like one, two, or three things that you could drill into 
pilots' brains to be safer pilots? What would what would those be? Yeah, and I was I was thinking this would be a great video topic. You know, what are they? Right. If, you, if you want to not kill yourself, yeah. what are the most important things to focus on? And I don't, I haven't done a huge amount of research into what the answers are for that. But just a stab in the dark would be looking, uh, focusing on the right things would be critical. For example, when you're landing out, don't worry about the radio. Don't worry about things that are irrelevant to landing safely and ideally as normal as possible. Uh, so focus is one. Safe speed near the ground is an obvious critical one. We have so many people crashing into mountains, potentially from stall or spin accidents or turning onto finals and going into a spin or a stall or off the winch going into a spin yeah. or a stall. So, you know, focusing on never letting your speed get too slow is obviously a critical one as well. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's great advice. I think that's totally true. And and I think what, what, what I always think about this is that um, people know that they need to fly fast enough. The problem is when they get into a situation where it's kind of impossible to fly fast enough, right? So if, you, if you're yeah. coming in too low on your final turn, uh, you know you should fa fly faster, but what do you do when you're too low? Uh, <laughs> your temptation will be there to, to fly, you know, to stay above the ground, and that's where you spinning and uh, and that's when people kill themselves yeah. yeah i think another um idea is to actually focus on your glider and doing lots of spinning and stalling in it so you know how it behaves and you get to know instinctively what it sounds like and feels like when you're getting close to a stall for example yeah so that when you're on a, in a stressful situation like landing in a paddock that recognition that things are going bad or about to go bad uh, will be more natural. Yeah, that your instinct is to push the stick forward and not to, uh, yeah, not, not to yeah, do the exactly. opposite. Yeah. yeah. Well, great. Yeah, thank you. Um, your, your soaring videos, they feature some really spectacular and exciting flights. I mean, there's, uh, well, the last one I just, you just published this week is just terrific. It's amazing. Uh, oh, it's like, <laughs> like Balika all over again. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but uh, and you, you recently published one where it looks like you get stuck in the mountains and boxed in between the rocks and the clouds. And there's, there's one, I think, there's where you're flying low along a ridge and, you know, the ridge doesn't really work anymore. And so the question that I have is, is what, what are some of the most memorable experiences in the cockpit? Take a, take a flight or two and put people into your cockpit and, and, and tell them, what you have seen uh, and experienced yourself and whether you've captured it on, on video or not, just, just make it, make it visible for them. Yeah. So unfortunately I've only been recording videos for the last year and a half of my flying. Uh, just before I got the Ventus, I got my first GoPro and I started experimenting with uh, the videos. So I've missed out on filming huge amounts of uh, landouts in particular. I've done about 80 landouts, I think. In total wow. around yeah. New Zealand fields. So, uh, yeah. and now I want to make a video about landouts, but I don't have any footage for it, sadly. And, uh, so, <laughs> yeah, that, that's the problem of having an engine now. <laughs> exactly. So, I've nearly landed out with the Ventus a few times, um, but got away with the engine. So, yeah, there's been lots of exciting landouts. Um, one in particular, I really um, ballsed it up, as it were. Uh, landing on the side of a hill once on a on a little airstrip in New Zealand, and I misjudged the clouds had come over. It was grey and overcast, and so there wasn't any bright sun, which helps you see shadows and things on the ground. And I didn't see the slope of the airfield was running opposite to the way I thought it was. So I ended up landing downhill down this little airstrip, Ooh. and I had a slight tailwind as downhill, well because I yeah. thought I was landing uphill. So that was an exciting one, and there were there was on the side of a hill with um, I I'd call it a cliff, but it was more like more of a gully where, you know, at the end of the airfield, it, it dived off, and there was a fence to stop you, to catch you if you're lucky. Anyway, I landed on this um, airstrip heading downhill and uh -huh. uh, managed to ground loop it with a about five meters to spare. So that's been my most exciting wow. landout. Did, did, did it do any damage or did, 
did the, the tail boom take any damage? Yeah, I thought I'd got away it? with it without any damage. And then as we're putting the glider away, I realized the wing, as I put it down on the ground, it was the glider was still going quite fast and it, it actually scraped along some stones and made a little hole in the wing. So I had to get that repaired, uh-huh. but nothing too major. But yeah. uh, no, otherwise, most of the other landouts I've done have been pretty uneventful. Some of the best flying we've done, most interesting flying is some of the coastal flying, which you know, I've seen Stefan Langer came and did some of as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, these were some of the crazy videos too from Stefan. Yeah, Stephen and actually, too. if you look in some of his videos, you'll see him filming a DG300. So that was me whizzing along. And uh, Oh, okay, cool. So that coastal flying is spectacular just because you're, you're not used to being, uh, you know, 500 feet above the ground for three hours. <laughs> you know, it's very unusual flying uh, compared to what we normally do. Yeah. So that's fun. Well, you have to trust that the wind, uh, the wind uh is is constant and uh doesn't even because there's no if if it were to stop there is no time to react but it's i guess along the along the coast the wind the wind is usually pretty steady yeah exactly it is uh, it would just freak me out a little bit uh, <laughs> <laughs> to think about the, <laughs> no, to to think about being totally reliant on that wind continuing uh, continuously and not being like a lull of 20 seconds in which case you you end up in the water yeah and because you've got so much ocean out in front it is a very steady stream of air you don't have um, interruptions caused by turbulence uh, the only thing that can throw a spanner in the works is a rain shower coming through which can often uh, mm-hmm. make it a bit um, that can lull the wind as the rain goes through mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, no, I mean this is this one must be absolutely spectacular. I've not done anything like that even remotely, but uh, that'd be really cool. I have some exciting news, especially for you Condor pilots out there. We are glad to have our sponsor Just Soaring back with a couple of updates about their Glider Sim Pro, a sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor Soaring. Their website is all new and now has a couple of videos to look at. Updated product pictures and specs, and even a facts section to help answer some of your questions. If you follow the Soaring Academy on Instagram, you've probably seen one of the first production units in operation there at Crystal Airport. And so far, it's a big hit with their students and instructors. Just Soaring is also proud to be the lead sponsor of the first ever FAI-sanctioned eSports glider race. That's right, the Sailplane World Grand Prix is coming in September. The winning pilot gets a Glider Sim Pro. You'll be seeing lots more of their Glider Sim rigs across the U.S. and the rest of the world in the coming months. So check them out at JustSoaring.com on the web or Just.Soaring on Instagram. So what's your favorite kind of soaring? Uh, do you like like the strong days when things are easy and you can go far and fast? Or are you more drawn to challenging days that give you some puzzles to solve? So what's and what types of lift do you like the most uh, uh, to to fly in? Yeah, so I'm I'm a huge fan of convergence flying. Uh, you know, trying to figure out where they are and getting into them, it's very satisfying because you can get a bit higher than normal as well. So it looks beautiful. Yeah, and you can climb up on the side of the clouds. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so I love being above the clouds, just probably because we don't do it that often. So it's always a novelty when we do. Yeah, the the best flights. What I want to try and do is um, push myself and do longer flights. So, and in New Zealand, the North Island in particular, you know, trying to do a big triangle is a real challenge because you have to go through all these different air masses with different uh, sea breezes and lake breezes. So it can be quite a challenge to do big 500 even or 750 triangles are a real challenge. So that's kind of uh, my next goals. Cool. Yeah, that sounds that sounds very interesting and challenging. Uh, fun. Um, so as we as we get towards the the end here, are there are the individuals or organizations that have been particularly instrumental in your own development as a pilot um, that you want to give a shout out to, or in your case as an instructor, the particular students uh, that you're proud of in terms of what they have accomplished? Yeah, absolutely. So probably the instructing team at our club. You know, I've been there 15 years now, and they've been completely supportive all the way through. And things like letting me take one of our club's gliders down to O'Marima, you know, for two weeks, you know, that kind of thing 
that kind of support makes a huge difference. And uh, back in the day when I couldn't afford my own glider, just being able to use club equipment and things and have such a supportive yeah. instructing team was a huge benefit. So, And uh, as for students, we've got some amazing young students right at the minute. Uh, Charlotte and Josh and Sharia, for example, they're, um, you know, some of them, a couple of them are really young going on. They won't be able to go solo for a few years yet because they're too young. But their flying is incredible. You know, they're doing everything themselves, full circuits and winch launches and the rest of it. So it's very cool to see. That is great. Yeah, that is great. Especially the, if, if you're for a lot more young people. Uh, do, we, did you see this too, that there's kind of uh, more people drawn to soaring now, especially since the, the pandemic? I see this here. Uh, there's, there's a lot more interest in soaring. Do you, do you see the same thing? Yeah, um, to some extent. We... Um, It's all about publicity, I guess, and uh, that was one of the reasons for um, doing the YouTube channel was I found that a great way to promote the sport to, you know, we, we tend to get on the edges of people who are interested in aviation, but maybe not necessarily have tried gliding. So it's a great way to promote the sport to those kind of people. Yeah, is that is that uh, <clears throat> one of the things that motivated you to do the to do the videos? I mean, what what drove you to this is a lot of work doing videos. I mean, I, I noticed myself it's it's like yeah. you can <laughs> you can spend you can spend weeks doing video editing. So, uh, what 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 draws you to this and what keeps you going? Yeah, well, why did I start? I think I started. Stefan Langer came out to New Zealand and did some flying here, and I was slightly inspired by him. Uh, And I thought about it, and I knew it would be a huge amount of work, so I kind of put it off for quite a while and uh, decided to give it a go. And it's had a few benefits. One, it, it gives me something to do on those, um, you know, our flying season isn't as long as other countries. Uh, we have probably six months of good flying weather, and then over winter, you know, it's only ridge flying, really, and the occasional wave flight. So the videos give me something to do over the downtime that's flying related so uh, and also just gives me another dimension to my flying as well so you know you've got to not get bored and sometimes <laughs> but you know if you're doing the same kind of flights all the time it does get boring so the videos give me a new way to do something interesting yeah yeah well can you make sure that people know uh, where to find uh, your videos yeah just google pure glide Uh, and you'll find the YouTube channel on Pure Glide. And uh, if you want to check out the web store, I've got some T-shirts and things. You can check out pureglide.nz is the domain name. Uh -huh. And uh, be very keen for people to check out the channel. Yeah, you got some cool merchandise there too. So, so I hope I hope that's going well for you. Yeah, thank you. And uh, well, thanks very much for all your videos too. They've been really interesting. It's great. I love seeing flying at different sites and what it's like to fly in different places and get some real analysis of it too. So really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I hope you can you get a chance to, to come over sometime when this whole COVID thing is over and uh, love to have you here. Oh, I'd love to do some flying in the US. Fly, fly with you over the Rockies. Yeah, that would yeah, be amazing. Be very cool. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, so, um, would you mind if we do a lightning round at the end? Since uh, I think that's uh, it's been a bit big success factor of the show. Yeah, go for it. Okay, all right. So you know the drill, right? So a short question, you give you give give an answer, and uh, you can say pass if you don't want to give an answer. All right. But, uh, let's go. Let's go quick. So you sign up for a contest. Which one do you pick? A regular contest or a Grand Prix? Oh, regular. Uh, someone else pays to rent the glider for you uh, for the contest. And what, what class do you fly in? Club, 15 meter, 18 or open? Uh, 15 or 18. 15 or 18. Okay, so let's say let's say 18. So what's, um, what glider do you rent? Uh, a Ventus 3, a JS3, an ASG29, an AS33 and an Antares or something else? Oh, I'd love to try a Ventus 3. I think that would uh, be my key pick right now. All right, excellent. Um, that's a champion loyalty, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything that you're used to from your own glider that you don't expect to find in the rented glider that you and that you just have to bring along? Oh yeah, the beautiful suede on my dashboard and the beautiful pockets I've got there, lovely. 
Right. I thought you would say a second yaw string. Yeah, well, that too. Good idea. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Um, so let's say you can fly for a week at any of the following locations. All expenses paid. Where do you go? French Alps, Namibia, Chile, Rocky Mountains. Uh, or you stay in New Zealand or you go someplace else? Oh, the French Alps would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? I think uh, yeah, in America, yeah. I'd love to go to America sometime and fly. Yeah. Excellent. Awesome. Um, so then you get to the, the weather briefing um, in the morning at a contest. Uh, who do you rely on the most? The, the local weather person, uh, your favorite forecasting tool like SkySight or whatever you use, or your view of the sky? Oh, a bit of both of SkySight and, of course, the locals because they know best. Yeah, yeah. So let's say you've you've done eighty landouts. So this this one should be easy. Um, so you, you have to. You, there's twenty knot wind, and uh, you have a choice of two fields. Uh, one is a freshly mowed but narrow hayfield, and you have to land in a twenty knot crosswind uh, if you choose that field, or you have to yep. land into the wind in a cow pasture and there's cows in it, and you just have enough space to land without hitting a cow. Which one do you pick? But you can land into the wind in the in the cow pasture. Oh, that's an interesting question. I thought these were meant to be quick and easy. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably avoid the cows because they are very curious. They'll come and walk all over your yes. glider. Uh, depends how turbulent it is. So, oh, it's a yeah, tough it's question. A tough one. I, I didn't want. I didn't mean, mean to make it easy. <laughs> <laughs> okay so all right so you get down on the ground you're uh, and now the the mean farmer a mean looking farmer it's just mean looking who knows right uh, a mean looking farmer shows up uh, and what's your explanation of what just happened the, the thermals died the wind stopped or sorry this is not the airport <laughs> yeah, that's right so, they usually come out with what happened did the wind stop so, uh, so you go with the wind stop, and, uh, yeah, because that's the the common the common uh, <laughs> expectation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the first thing I say is, "Oh, do you kids want to sit in it?" Then they then they right, best friends. Exactly, so. that works. Yeah. Uh, who do you call to retrieve you now, uh, since you're in the field? Uh, your gliding buddies, um, uh, your spouse, or somebody else? Well, that's the lovely thing. Once you've got an engine, it means you're the one who gets back to the field and has to go and pick up all your friends. So I know they'd come and pick me up when they when yeah. I need it to. Yeah. Um, so then uh, you drive back home from your landout uh, and you stop at a gas station um, and someone asks you, as always, uh, what's in the trailer? What do you say? A home-built rocket? A contest alligator? Uh, you're not allowed to tell? Or you try to explain once again what a glider is? The best one I had was someone asked, is that a submarine? <laughs> so I'd go for submarine every time. You got the submarine, excellent. The last time I stopped, it was a uh, uh, it was a drag racer. It's like, how do you come up? How oh, did yeah. you think it was a drag racer? I said, well, my dad was into drag racing. I said, yeah, but did he have such narrow ones? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was very funny. Um, and what's the first thing you do when you get home? Uh, do you take a shower, eat dinner, upload your flight trace so your friends can see it, or do you make a video? Oh, definitely shower. And then the videos come months later, so there's <laughs> no rush for them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you, Tim. You've been a great sport. That's, uh, those, are, those are all the ones I came up with. <laughs> But, uh, well, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I, I hope uh, the listeners like this uh, as much as I did. And uh, I sure hope uh, you get we get to fly together sometime, uh, either in, in the U.S. or in New Zealand. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, we wish you all the best. All right. Well, thanks very much and, for doing uh, this interview. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. And uh, yeah, good luck with your with your channel. I think it's, uh, it's really cool. Just want to remind people again, Pure Glide. Um, is uh, is the channel and uh, nobody will regret uh, subscribing. Wow, and it's don't really forget awesome to check out Chess in the Ear as well, of course. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're, you're too kind. <laughs> okay, all right. Thank you, thank you, Tim. All right, that was that was a lot of fun. Yep, thank you. Thank you. Uh, goodbye. You have probably heard of the LS8 a mighty standard class glider that is flying around in world championships. And you might have heard of the LS4, a very useful club class glider that is known for its favorable handling capabilities. 
or maybe the LS6 with an extra flap handle and both 15 and 18 meter configuration. But have you ever heard of the LS2? And have you ever heard of the LS5? This is a story I'd like to tell you today. A story of reading between the lines and coming just that bit too late. Let's start with the LS2. The LS2 was designed to become the new powerhouse in the standard class and it would exploit a new rule for the standard class. And that rule was that trailing edge flaps could be used. And so they were not only air brakes, but could also be used as actual flaps to climb better. This brought the LS2 a bit more performance and it was Helmut Reichmann who brought the LS2 to the World Championships in Australia. And he was very successful. He won the world champion title there. The rules for the standard class said that these flaps could not be attached to the ailerons. And so the glider was quite sluggish and that the extra workload for the pilot was quite significant. In 1974, the FAI decided that the standard class rules would change again. And so there was no room for the LS2 anymore. And so there was only one built, one that became a world champion but never had any siblings. And then there's the story of the LS5. Both the LS3 and the LS4 were really competitive, but Roland Schneider didn't yet make an open class glider. And so to compete with the ASW17 and with the Nimbus 2, the LS5 was designed. They designed a beautiful aircraft and had made the molds already, but then disaster struck because Alexander Schleicher came out with the ASW22 and Schipperth came out with the Nimbus 3. At that moment, the designers knew that the LS5 wouldn't be able to compete with the other two gliders. And so they wanted to pretend as if the project never happened. They even wanted to destroy the molds. But luckily, there was one guy from Kaiserslautern in Germany who saved the molds and produced the only LS5. And how lucky are we with that? Because the LS5 is a true beauty. Last week, I was at Stendal, where there were so many of these one-off aircrafts, and I got to see the LS2 and the LS5 next to each other. I don't know what it is, but these types, these stories are so interesting to me. So I hope you've enjoyed these two stories, and I do encourage you to give these guiders a Google search. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next week. I want to take a minute and thank and tell you about our newest sponsor, Wings and Wheels. They've been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They're proud to be an exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean, you can bet a friendly voice will answer when you call. They're located in Eagle, Idaho in their new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications. And that was completed this year. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. They would love for you to come and visit the next time you're in the Boise area. You can check them out on wingsandwheels.com. We're super excited to have them on the pod. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Surrey Master here with tips and advice about cross-country flying. Cross-country flights do not always have to be a one-way ticket towards our goal or an outland. And today, we're going to talk about a very simple way of increasing the chances of making back home during cross-country flights. The cross-country task is planned taking into consideration the day's forecast climb average from which we retrieve the cross-country speed, and the day's forecast sorable time window from which we will estimate the task duration. Certain tasks are not completed due to a lower achieved cross-country speed than the planned one. It can be caused by weather changes affecting the climb rate or poor pilot's technique. If we distribute along the route base checkpoints calculated with a lower cross-country speed, say 10 or 5% lower cross-country speed than the forecast before the last lag, 
And upon reaching this point, we assess whether the task still is achievable or not, given the weather ahead. One can just call the day and head back home instead of launching himself towards an all-or-nothing attempt. Triangular tasks are the easiest ones to distribute checkpoints along the second leg, so if we notice that the achieved cross-country speed is way lower than the forecast or the one needed to complete the task within the storable window, one can easily shorten the triangle and still be able to return home. Have in mind that outlanding is a huge part of our sport, and we will inevitably have to outland every once in a while. And these pace checkpoints, they cannot control the weather, neither, but they will help you decide which battles are worth fighting for or not. I wish you all happy flying! If you want more tips, follow me on Instagram at StoryMaster or check my website, StoryMaster.com. Thank you, Sergio and Flying Simon, for those great soaring segments. Looking forward to hearing more of those. A big thank you to our guest pilot, Tim Bromhead. Thanks for taking your time out to be on the podcast here. We'll be putting a link to his YouTube channel in the show notes, so definitely check that out. Thank you, Clemens, for being a great guest host. You did a great job. I appreciate that. Don't forget to check out his blog as well, Chess in the Air, as well as his YouTube channel. Hey, before we wrap up the show... Don't forget to record your soaring story on SoaringTheSky.com. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at Chuck at SoaringTheSky.com or send us a message on our website at SoaringTheSky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.